Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. It is uh, just such a joy to be able to worship with the family of God on on Sunday morning. And uh, yeah, I'm just really glad to be able to be here with you all. We find ourselves at the tail end of our study in Hebrews. And it really has been a blessing to study through this book with you. Last week, we began studying Hebrews chapter 12. As Pastor Henry helped us see our need to continually fix our eyes on Jesus as we go through life. And the reason why we continually fix our eyes on Christ is because we know that he is the one who will help us finish the race. He will bring us all the way home. Our text this week takes us to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, verses 4 through 17. And we're going to read our sermon text in the message this morning. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. And also, if you'd like a handout to follow along with in the sermon, you can find it on our, in our online bulletin. But uh, before we go any further, let's pray one more time. Our Lord, we are grateful that you provide us with your word. We are grateful for the treasure that is within it. And even though we will study something that may be difficult to hear for some, or maybe overly familiar for some, we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Help us to see the treasure of your word, and may we not just hear it, but may we seek to apply it to our lives as well. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, at some point in our Christian lives, we've encountered difficulties that make us pause and wonder what in the world is happening. Whether it's interpersonal struggles or educational or professional roadblocks or just not understanding why God seems to be withholding something good from you, these feelings of frustration and bewilderment are very real. It can make us pause and wonder, is God mad at me? Is he punishing me? Or is there some sort of sin in my life that I've not confessed? Now, to be honest, those are not necessarily bad initial thoughts. Right? We should wonder whether we're being disciplined because of sin. We should wonder if there is something that we should be doing, but we're not doing. But what happens? What happens if you are seemingly doing everything that you know to do, that you know is right, but God is still not letting you move forward? It seems as if you might still be experiencing God's discipline. Right? What, what should you do then? Now, I understand that for some of you, this is not a, hypo- this is not a hypothetical question. Right? This might be something that you are currently going through and have been going through for a very long time. Well, I don't want to pretend like I know for sure that what you are facing is the discipline of the Lord, there is a possibility that it may be the discipline of the Lord. And that, of course, could lead to more frustration. Right? A throwing up of hands right? and an explanation. What did I do? What are you doing, God? I didn't do anything. And part of this mindset comes from 
the idea that God's discipline is only a punishment reaction. That it is only punitive and corrective. While that could be the case, we also forget that discipline has other purposes also. For instance, it could be a discipline that builds up good habits that eventually prevents us from sinning. Or perhaps it can be a discipline that educates us on how we might better serve the Lord in our lives. And so when we consider these different purposes that discipline can have in our lives, we recognize that discipline is nothing to look down upon. It's nothing to hate. But as we will learn in our sermon today, discipline is something that we should eventually willingly embrace, willingly endure. Why? Because it will be through discipline that we will learn how to continually fix our eyes on Jesus, no matter what comes our way, no matter what storms come upon us. And so in this morning's text, we're going to observe two reminders that encourage us to endure God's discipline in our lives. Two reminders that will encourage us to endure God's discipline in our lives. The first is that God disciplines believers as his sons. And the second is that God's disciplines result in mutual care. God's disciplines result in mutual care. The first reminder that will encourage us to endure God's discipline in our lives is that God disciplines believers as his sons. And for the sake of context, we're going to start reading back in verse 3. Verses 3 and 4 of Hebrews 12. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And so in this context, the author instructs his readers to fix our eyes on Jesus as we're reminded by the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 that Christ can bring us safely home. He can bring us safely to the end. And we know that he can bring us safely home. We know that he can bring us safely to the end because he brought the cloud of witnesses through it all. He himself went through it all. And so using Jesus as an example, the author reminds us in verse 3 how much Christ endured so that when we consider what he endured, we won't grow weary. Now, is the author minimizing or making light of the suffering and persecution that his audience experiences? Not exactly. Rather, by using the word consider, the author is making an analogy between Jesus and his readers. Jesus endured undeserved hostility by sinners against himself. This is a hostility that led him to the cross. And obviously, that's not a hostility that you just get over. It's not just a hostility that you just triumph over. Jesus endured that suffering, and that suffering took him to death. But he didn't let that define him. Yes, he died. But you know as well as I do, 
that wasn't the end of the story. He rose from the grave. He sat down at the right hand of God. He went through the times of trial and suffering. He endured through it all. and He came out, risen in the end. He came out Lord in the end. He always was Lord, right? But he proved it for sure, which is why he sat down at the right hand of God. And so as we consider what he went through, the author says that the reminder of what Jesus went through, it ought to encourage us, right? We should not grow weary or be faint of heart. Why? Because he endured, right? He endured. He per- He persevered and was faithful to the end. He blazed the trail for us, and he set it. So all we do is follow. He showed us that running the race and enduring, even though the course takes us through suffering, it's it's not just theoretical. It's possible. It's possible. He'll get us home. And so, verse 4. When we compare where we are at in our races with what Jesus endured, we find that we're just at the very beginning of endurance. We've not endured to the end yet. This is why the author highlights the fact that we've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in our striving against sin. When we fight against sin or the temptation to sin, we don't die. Right? We're still alive. Jesus, when he went through all of that hostility, he died. He went through it all and he died. We're just at the beginning. We've not made it yet. Now, some of you may hear what the author is saying and you're thinking, how dare you? How dare you? You can't judge me. You don't know how long I've already endured. Don't tell me that I'm just at the beginning. Don't tell me that I haven't endured enough. Right? That can be the temptation. That can be what we're thinking, what we're feeling as we read this. And you're saying, "What? I've not yet. I've not. I've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. How dare you say that to me?" But don't miss the author's point. Don't miss the author's point. The author under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not not minimizing your trials or your suffering. He's encouraging you. Although, it can be a little firmer than we prefer. Now, how is this encouragement? Well, don't forget the context of Hebrews 11. Don't forget the cloud of witnesses. They are here for us to remind us that Christ's promises to protect us, to save us, and to bring us all the way home, they're true. They're true. Christ did it himself. He paved the way. He helped us see that it is possible. And because Christ can do it, because he proved that he could do it, because he is our sympathetic high priest, he'll get us through those trials. And because he'll get us through those trials, we can have confidence that we, we can endure. It's not if you will endure. You will endure. Or you can because of him. Not on your own strength, but because of him. You can and will endure. Yes, we're at the start. 
Yes, some of us may not have done all that we can at this point to patiently endure trials and resist temptation to sin. But as you consider him, as you fix your eyes on him, remember the hope that you have in him. It's in him. And that's, that's the positive encouragement. That's that's the positive encouragement. Now, the author, he also does provide a corrective exhortation as well. Right? We know that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, but the reason why we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus is because we've forgotten perspective. Verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. While the author encourages us to fix our eyes on Christ and and consider what his victory means for us when we face our trials, he's reminding us, guys, you've forgotten. You've forgotten a fundamental truth. You see, as we fixate on what we're losing as we think about what we're suffering and how we're feeling in our trials, we forget that God disciplines his sons. We forget that God disciplines his sons. We raise our hands as if we just got called for a foul and we've done nothing. We're just like, what are you doing? It's like, hey, you've forgotten that God disciplines his sons. And this reminder comes to us by way of a quote, and this quote is from Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. Now, as you might remember, Proverbs 3 is part of Solomon's opening address to his son Rehoboam, to pursue wisdom. In verses 5 and 6, right, we have many people's favorite verse. Right? Trust in the Lord, all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and acknowledge God in all your ways, and he will make your paths straight. And sometimes, we take those words to mean that God will make our way easy. That we will have blessing as long as we trust God. Right? Blessing and, and no suffering. But brothers and sisters, if God makes our paths straight... Is it not true that those straight paths may take us straight through valleys of sorrow and treacherous mountainous inclines? Because if you think about it, if we were to take a straight path from San Francisco to Los Angeles, we're going to go through some valleys, aren't we? We're going to have to climb through some mountains. Because of human ingenuity, right? when we design the freeways, besides the five, it's curving around obstacles. Right? The easiest thing to do would be to just go straight through it, but of course we don't want to blow up mountains all the time to, to create tunnels. So that's why we have curvy roads. Right? If we go straight through, though, that's the most direct path. But... With the most direct path, it does take us through trials. It does take us through suffering. Now, 
And so that's why Solomon says, as you trust in the Lord, and you lean not on your own understanding, and you acknowledge him in all your ways, that means that you're trusting in him despite trials. You're trusting him through those trials. That's why when those trials come, when that discipline comes, you don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. As we noted earlier in our introduction, there are a few reasons for the discipline that God gives us. There are some possible reasons for God's discipline. The first possible reason for God's discipline is, of course, corrective punishment. Perhaps we've not been doing what we should be doing, so he disciplines us. He doesn't judge us, right? but he disciplines us to correct us. Another reason why we might experience the discipline of the Lord is sin prevention. Right? He's building up our spiritual muscles so that when we encounter those trials, when we encounter those situations where we're tempted to sin, we don't. And then the third possible reason for God's discipline is education for better service. Right? By discipline, we learn how to better worship the Lord, better consider the Lord. And so if God disciplines because he loves us, and he wants what is good for us, then we ought not make light of it. Or in other words, we shouldn't look down upon it and view it as disgusting or as worthless. He uses discipline to help us grow in our faith. He uses discipline to wean us off sin. He uses discipline to help us realize how much we need Jesus. No matter how long you've been coming to this church, no matter how many years you've been a professing believer, we still need Christ. And he uses discipline for all sorts of reasons. And all of them, all of them are good. And so we have to catch ourselves when we're tempted to think, God's punishing me. Because if we've placed our faith in Christ, there's no more judgment. There's no more condemnation. Consequences and correction, yes, but no more judgment. Therefore, when we experience his discipline, we should not despair. We should not faint. We should not lose heart because that discipline is not meaningless. God doesn't hate you, even if it feels like he does. Rather, as we see in verse 6, he demonstrates love to you in discipline because he disciplines those he loves. The word flog in verse 6 is also translated as scourge or chastise in many of our English translations. Right? This is the same word used to describe Jesus' whipping in front of Pilate. It can be severe. Right? The, the discipline of the Lord, it can be painful. It can be severe. When he disciplines us, it's not like he puts us in a corner for time out for five minutes, and then we learn our lesson, and then we get to go around and play again. Because when we're caught up in our own ways, we can be foolish. We can be stubborn. Our hearts are often hardened by sin and the effects of sin. And so, though we hear discipline, though we hear correction uh, or the word of God, without the discipline to wake us up, we remain in our foolishness. A simple time out will not do. 
And that's why in Proverbs 22.15, Solomon, again, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, notes that all children have foolish hearts. Right? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. They don't know any better. It's characteristic of them. Loving, corrective discipline removes the foolishness, and it trains the child up in wisdom. Now, obviously, discipline is not always fun. It's not always welcome, but God, he disciplines us out of love because we are his sons, we're his children. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? As we endure in this race set before us, what we have to recognize is that endurance comes with discipline. It is inescapable. Right? It's like when we saw those toy ads on TV growing up, and they tell you, this toy comes with batteries included. Endurance comes with discipline included. Endurance comes with discipline included. It is inescapable because God deals with us as sons. Right? Notice the line of logic that the author appeals to. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? The author is appealing to a truism. Right? Parents naturally discipline their children. And if God is our father, and we are his children, then discipline, even though it hurts, is a part of our relationship with him. Now, I understand that in our day and age, the idea of physical discipline, right, especially if it's painful, it can be controversial. While nobody wants kids who are out of control, there is right concern about physical discipline due to the fear of physical abuse. And we want to acknowledge that in our sin-cursed world that the potential for physical abuse is a very real thing. Right? It's not some made-up thing to scare us. It's a real thing. But what we see here, as the author of Hebrews helps us understand that God's discipline, it's not like the discipline of sinful men. It's different from that of flawed, sinful fathers. And of course, not limited to flawed, sinful fathers, but it's, it's also different from flawed, sinful mothers as well. If you know someone who has endured an abusive relationship from sinful parents, or you've experienced that yourself, please know that the abuse that was experienced wasn't God-honoring. It's sin. It's evil. It's wicked. It's a grievous sin that was committed, and God will for sure deal with that sin. No one gets away with that. If the abuser comes to Christ in faith, it's dealt with in Christ. But if the abuser never comes to faith, and they deal with it in final judgment. No sin will ever go unpunished. And the reason why I bring this up in the middle of our discussion is because I want to acknowledge that these particular verses, they can be difficult. And for some of you to hear, 
you've experienced it or you're, if you've been personally affected by it. It can be difficult for you to understand in light of the circumstances that you may have experienced. But please note what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. There may be people who have parents who fail them and fail them mightily. But God is the ultimate parent. And he will never fail us. He never goes beyond what is necessary. He never crosses the line. He will be everything that our earthly parents should have been and more. He's perfect. Verse 8. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. As we established in verse 7, endurance comes with discipline included. There are no exceptions. In case people were looking for exceptions, the author helps us see that there is no such thing as a Christian who endures through the race who does not also experience discipline. Discipline is something that all Christians partake in. It's something that we all share. If you've not experienced any discipline from God in your life, then you actually prove that you're an illegitimate child, that you're not part of the family. In Greek culture, families who had illegitimate children in the home did not discipline or educate those children. Nor did those illegitimate Legitimate children receive any inheritance. They lived in the house, but that was about it. The privileges of education, of discipline, of inheritance were exclusive to those who were legitimate children. And in using this analogy, the author of Hebrews drives home a striking point. When we face the discipline of our Lord, when we experience it, even though it hurts, it's proof. It's proof that we've been adopted and given full rights as children of God. That's proof that God loves us. That's proof that we're not just secondary citizens within his home. We get to share in all the blessings. It's proof that he loves us. And for that reason, we naturally receive discipline. Verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirit and live? Appealing to a generalized truth about earthly fathers, the author reminds us that the proper result of discipline done by earthly fathers should, right, should lead to respect of those fathers. Now, sure, there may have been moments of rebellion and disrespect, especially in the teenage years, right? But over time, generally speaking, the result of discipline ought to lead to respect and honor of our parents. And if that is the case for our earthly parents who discipline us, in an argument of the lesser to the greater, should we not be subject or submit ourselves to God the Father when he disciplines us? Now you notice that the author, he identifies God here as the Father of Spirits. And that's likely to contrast 
the, the idea that there are earthly fathers out there. Right? There's no mistaking the two. We have earthly parents, but we also have God, who is our spiritual father. And as we submit to him, as we willingly embrace the discipline that he gives, we will be able to live life in a way that pleases him as we learn the lessons that he wants us to learn. Verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share his holiness. The superior benefit of God the Father's discipline is seen here as his discipline is held up against earthly parents' discipline. Notice how earthly parents' discipline is described. It's a discipline that's only for a short time. It's only limited to a small portion of our lives. Right? If you're 45, you shouldn't still be dig- being disciplined physically by your parent. Right? You should be beyond that. Not only is it limited in time, but the discipline of our earthly parents is limited to what seemed best to them. And that doesn't mean that their discipline was always right. It doesn't mean that their discipline was always done in the right way. I mean, how many times have we experienced or given discipline out of anger How many times have we experienced or given discipline out of impatience? How many times have we experienced unjust accusation or been the ones who were making the unjust accusations? Parents' ability to discipline is only as good as their limitations. This is not so with God. Because he has no such limits. He is good. And he does good. He is the most perfect father that has ever and will ever exist. When we ask him for a fish, he certainly will not give us a venomous snake. So when he disciplines us, The discipline is not what subjectively seems good to him in the moment. It is always and entirely for our benefit. It is entirely for our good. It is all done so that we can share in his holiness. And it is for this reason James tells us in James 1, 2-4, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God allows us to go through trials so that through the testing of our faith, through the act of enduring while keeping our eyes locked on Jesus, we might grow in holiness. He allows it all so that when we reach the end, we will be like Jesus perfectly. We get to share in God's holiness perfectly. And that sounds great, right? And it is. But the author of Hebrews also reminds us, he admits to us in verse 11 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, in all discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But 
to those who have been trained by it. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The author of Hebrews, he did not forget who he was writing to. He's not trying to pull a fast one on believers who are already hurting and already tempted to stop enduring because of persecution. He didn't forget that. So he reminds them that the discipline that they will endure on the way to holiness and on the way to the finish line, it's not going to be joyful right, all the time. There are going to be moments, not just of sorrow, but of great sorrow. But those moments of sorrow that we experience in life, they're not without purpose. Right? God doesn't just allow those things to happen in our lives because he was bored and he just wanted to see how you would react. Or because he, he delights in seeing you suffer. That's not why he allows it. They are means by which God trains us in righteousness and holiness. And when the training has its intended effect, we will yield that peaceful fruit of righteousness. But you have to go through the training first. Right? When he allows it into your life, he's training you. He is teaching you. And when we learn what he wants us to learn, then we get to have peace. We get to experience righteousness. We get to share in God's holiness. So, Let us remember not to look down or despise God's discipline in our lives. He lovingly disciplines us as his sons and as his children. Discipline is the proof of sonship. It's the proof that you belong in God's family. Endurance and sonship, it comes with discipline included. So we must embrace it when it shows up at our front doors. Yeah, when it shows up at our front doors, it's probably easier to want to turn your back on it and close the door and say, not today, but that's not what we're to do. We are to embrace it, welcome it in, and learn what God wants us to learn. The second reminder that encourages us to endure God's discipline in our lives is the reminder that God's discipline results in mutual care. It results in a desire to mutually care for one another. Verses 12 through uh, 13. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Remember, the original audience of Hebrews, they wanted to give up. Because of the persecution that they experienced, they were tempted to return to the comforts of Judaism. Christianity? No thanks. Too much work. Too hard. Too much isolation. I'm tired. Don't want to do it no more. And so just like those who are running a race, their fatigue began to show. Right? If you race, if you train to race, or you're just trying to get healthy, and you start running, you might be doing pretty well initially. Right? For me, it's like the first five steps. And then after that, oh, the hands start dropping. Right? Instead of keeping proper mechanics, your knees start buckling a little bit. Right? You're not running with good mechanics as you should, the author of Hebrews knows that, they're, that the original audience, they're tired. They're tiring quickly. They were already in the state of faltering. And so he brings them back. 
where he points them to Isaiah 35. That's where the quote in in, uh, verse 12 is from. He points them to Isaiah 35 when Israel was in a similar place of fatigue and wanting to give up. And during that time, God gives them a peek into the future and he shows them the joy that is coming with the kingdom. And with that joyous future in view, Isaiah encourages the people of Israel to strengthen their limp hands, to give courage to the knees of those who are stumbling. In other words, Isaiah encourages Israel, in light of the future, be strong. In light of the future, be courageous. And the author of Hebrews, he picks up on this, and he reminds the people, just as it was for your ancestors, so it is for you. Our glorious future in God's kingdom is even closer to us now because of Christ. Or because of Christ, the end is even nearer. The future is even surer. It's even more real to us because we're closer to it. And so be strong. And so be courageous. And in verse 13, pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. Making straight paths for your feet, it's a common expression, especially in Proverbs, for righteous living. Keep going straight towards the finish line. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus as you run ahead. And in so doing, as you do that, we will make sure that the people who are around us, who are running with us, will also be led on the path of righteousness. Right? We don't walk the Christian life alone. That's why you're surrounded by people in the chairs next to you. Right? As the church, we run together. It's not just you and your salvation. But we do this together as a body. And the people that we run with in this church or in any church that you will become a part of, some of them may be those who are lame. Not physically, but they might be spiritually hurting. They're already injured. They need help. And if we run together with the rest of the church, with the rest of the body, we ought not run in such a way where those who are already injured and are among us are led down a path where they experience more injury. The author of Hebrews highlights this with the words, may not be put out of joint. We don't want to live in such a way where we are responsible for dislocations within the body. We don't want to live in such a way where we cause others pain as we lead them down the wrong path. We don't want to be responsible for that. Rather, we want to live in such a way where as they're running with us towards Jesus, they experience healing. Healing, not dislocation. What is this healing? It is healing in the sense of learning to live holy. It's not like you pray for healing of sin and then you never sin again because that doesn't work. Just ask anyone who prays to the Lord and says, Lord, heal me from my anxiety. Lord, heal me from my anger. Lord, heal me from my bitterness. If you just pray that, does it work? Maybe for a moment, but you've not actually dealt with the sin. You ask God for help, but you've not dealt with the sin. And so eventually, you'll sin again. 
And so we're not talking about healing in the sense of your sin nature is healed and you'll never sin again in this particular way. Rather, what we're talking about is the healing that comes with training in righteousness. Choosing to turn away from our normal sinful responses and learning to turn towards living righteously. Choosing to pursue that which is good and holy rather than to pursue sin and allow for sin and its consequences to continue to wreak havoc on our lives. Now, how do we accomplish this strengthening ministry, right? this healing type of ministry that leads us to boldly endure the race together? Verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The word pursue can also be understood as strive or make every effort. And so in order to mutually care for one another as the Lord disciplines us all, as we share in that discipline, we are to use the strength and the grace that God gives us to pursue peace. Now, pursuing peace is not something that we do at all costs. Because Romans 12, 18 tells us that the pursuit of peace requires that we do everything that we can on our part to be at peace with other people. Right? So far as it depends on you, you be at peace with other people. Peace is a two-way street. Right? All parties involved have to be willing to pursue peace. If one party chooses not to pursue peace, then we're not responsible for failure to repair. Nevertheless, when it comes to pursuing peace, the main question that we must answer for ourselves is, have I, have I done everything that I am responsible to do? Sorry, have I done everything that I'm responsible to do in order to pursue peace? Naturally, because we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, we'll say, yeah, no, I've done everything that I could to pursue peace. But have we really? And have we really? Was your pursuit of peace basically, sorry. Was that all it was? Or have you actually gone to that other person? Have you actually tried to, to reconcile you know, if, if we know that there's something unresolved in a relationship that has become strained, right? It's good for us to seek counsel with others who know the situation. Ask them, hey, do you think there's more that I can do to pursue peace with this person? Right? Or if there's no one who knows the situation, you can still seek counsel, just don't mention any names, right? Talk about it generally, and that way you won't be gossiping. Right? But ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Right? In James, we are reminded that if we don't have wisdom, ask for it. God will give it to us. Right? He'll give it to us through the, the family members that we have here in the, in the body. Check and see if there's more that we can do. And if you really have done everything that you can to pursue peace, great. Keep doing it. Continue to pray for that other person. Continue to love on them. And hope that eventually, in the Lord's timing, you will finally have that peace that we're supposed to have. Right? But it's not just peace that we're supposed to pursue together. We're also called to pursue sanctification. We're called to pursue Christ-likeness. And we won't complete this pursuit until we're glorified, until heaven. But we must continually pursue holiness with the strength and grace that God provides. And if this crucial component 
of being a Christian is missing. It's absent in our lives. Right? Those who are missing it will be in danger, it says here, of not seeing the Lord. If we're not pursuing sanctification, we'll be in danger of not seeing the Lord. Which means you're in danger of being excluded from salvation and included in judgment. Verse 15. Seeing to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it may be defiled. Seeing to it reminds believers that it is our mutual duty to watch over one another. It's the same word that we get the word overseer from, seeing to it. The responsibility for caring for one another is not exclusive to the ministry of the elders. That is a part, a major part of the ministry of the elders. But if you look at the text, the author is not isolating elders here. This is addressed to all believers, all of his readers. We all bear responsibility for caring for each other, for helping each other out in the faith so that no one, no one among us will fall short of God's grace. The Christian life isn't just about how we as individuals are doing in our personal walk with Jesus and everybody else has to take care of themselves. As an interconnected part of the body, it should matter to us how other people are doing. We want to make sure, as the author references Deuteronomy 29.18 here, that there is no bitterness that springs up that poisons the congregation and causes people in the congregation to give in to the fatigue, to abandon God for comfort or other pursuits. The quote in verse 15, no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. That was what was happening within the people. And uh, something that Moses wanted the people to be aware of, to watch out for. Because for the people who had just been delivered from Egypt, whenever they encountered difficulty or trial as they journeyed to the promised land, it was easy for them to look back, to look back at what they left and to think, man, I wish I was back in Egypt. Things were so much better for me back in Egypt. Because they were bitter, because they were discouraged by the long journey to the promised land, they complained. They complained against Moses. They accused him of dragging them out of Egypt only to die in the wilderness. And the author of Hebrews says, we could easily do the same thing as we're discouraged. Right, for his original audience, as they're discouraged from isolation from family and community, it would be really easy for them to be bitter and to want to go back to the comforts of Judaism. For us, we can do the same thing too, right? We can think, you know what? Suffering for Jesus, it's not worth it. There are better offers on the table. If I just went back to my life as an unbeliever, I don't have to get up on Sunday early. I can sleep in. 
I can avoid trials. I can avoid suffering. I can avoid all this discipline that God provides for me. It would be so much easier, and it would. But we have to remember the truth. We endure discipline because we know what awaits us in the end. That Christ will get us home. It will be worth it. It will be worth it in the end because he's proven that he can do it. He's proven that he can bring us to the end because he's done it for those saints in Hebrews 11. And so we must trust him and we must endure even when it's difficult, even when we would much rather not endure. Verses 16 and 17. That also there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. As we are watching out for one another, we want to make sure that no one in our congregation follows the example of Esau. Now, the idea of Esau being sexually immoral could refer to the fact that he took multiple Canaanite wives. However, This is the first time in Scripture that we see Esau being uh, described as sexually immoral. So, perhaps, and this is just based off of my study, perhaps it might be slightly better to combine the ideas of Esau being sexually immoral with him being godless. It's a combined metaphor to describe the state of Esau's relationship with God. The reason why I think this is because in the Old Testament in particular, there is plenty of evidence where the worship of false gods over Yahweh is described as sexual immorality. It's described as adultery. And evidence that Esau didn't care for his relationship with God is seen in the fact that he sold his inheritance for a single meal. He didn't sell it for a lifetime pass at the buffets. He sold it for a single meal, a single bowl of red lentil stew. That's it. His birthright was worth one single bowl of stew. Now, in Israel, the birthright is a big deal. Not because an inheritance uh, promised wealth like you can in our society, but because an inheritance linked people back to God's promises for them as a nation. For an Israelite to desire their inheritance, it's the same thing as saying, I want to take my place among the people of God. And this is not something that would have surprised Esau. This is something that was well established in his family, which is why the promise was reiterated from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. It was continually... Yeah, sorry, Abraham and Isaac, right? Jacob's his brother. I mean, if you remember, even in our study in the book of Numbers, right, the idea of we cannot lose our inheritance. We have to make sure that we have our family's land. That was a big deal. And it was because they understood if we have our inheritance, we are saying that we are a part of the family of God, that we are a part of his plans and purposes, and that we identify with that, that we desire that for us and for our future generations, But for a moment, a moment of temporary satisfaction, Esau threw away his part among the people of God, and he gave it to his brother for a meal. 
He chose a single meal over loving God. He chose a single meal over loving God. And when he realized that he would miss out on the material blessings of God years later as his father was about to die, Esau wanted that blessing back. And he was even crying to try and prove his sincerity. But what we see here in the text is that he found no place for repentance. And it's not that God did not want to forgive Esau. God will willingly forgive us if we confess our sins. We know that from 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if Esau truly was repentant, God would have forgiven him. But the issue was that Esau never truly wanted to repent. He looked like he wanted to repent with his tears. But there was no repentance In his heart. As a church, as we endure the Lord's discipline together, and as we support each other, we want to make sure that there is no one in our church who refuses to repent, even though they cry. the Lord's discipline of us should cause us to care for one another so that we mutually encourage one another to continue to endure in faith, to continue to fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the hero who does everything to rescue us and bring us home to God. The race set before us by God, it is a straight path. It's a righteous path. And throughout the scriptures, we're reminded that it is our job not to veer to the left, not to veer to the right, but to stay straight on that path that the Lord has set before us. Now, as we run, right, we will encounter those valleys of sorrows. We will encounter those treacherous inclines. But those difficulties are reminders to us that God disciplines believers. He disciplines believers, but he will get us to the finish line of Christ. And despite the difficulties that come with the disciplines, this morning we were reminded of two reminders that encourage us to endure God's discipline. When he disciplines, it's because we're his sons, we're his children. It's proof that we belong in the family. So we can endure because we know that we're his. And another reason why we can endure why we can be encouraged to endure is because we do this together. And this is how we care for one another. This is how we together cross the finish line. No one left behind. Because we know that Jesus does it all. Because we know that Jesus will be faithful to bring us home. We can embrace discipline when it comes knocking at our door. We can welcome it in and embrace it as our friend. So we can Continue to fix our eyes on the example of Christ. We can remember our hope 
and refuse to allow our circumstances to define us because we know that through the circumstances, through the discipline, God is preparing us actively to share in holiness. Before I invite the worship team to come up and lead us in song, and I want to give us some discussion questions, some devotional considerations, if you will. You can do this on your own or even talk about it with someone, perhaps over lunch. Number one, what is your own honest view of God's discipline? Do you strive to embrace it or do you hate it? Number two, how does the reminder that we are to be trained up by the discipline that God gives impact our view of our difficulties? And number three, Think of one or two people that you can help mutually care for within the church. How can you run with them? Right? So it's a more practical question. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your word. And we're grateful for the fact that you know, you know us, you know our frame, you know our disposition, and you know that we need discipline. And because you are our loving Father, You give us the discipline that we need. Because you are our perfect Father, we can be comforted with the fact that even if it feels as if we cannot endure, you are the one who enables endurance. That you will never, ever cross the line. That you will never give us an inappropriate response to what we deserve, but it's always appropriate. We're grateful and comforted by that, and we pray more for your grace so that when discipline comes, we can endure and we can be trained up by it. Sons, and we pray.